Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Anybody Got Any Bright Ideas edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast, here in our podcast studio in Washington, D.C. Slow news week, huh, guys? Yeah, it's too bad nothing's going on. Well, Bobby Jindal did announce that he was withdrawing. Yeah. And that has important national security implications. Headline, ISIS defeats Bobby Jindal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That could be the headline. Uh, Obviously, no, it has not been a slow news week. So we're recording this, just so everyone knows, on Wednesday. Uh, in case uh, events dramatically change between now and the time you're hearing this. Uh, But obviously, yeah, the big news of the week has been the attacks in Paris, uh, which we're going to talk about today in the longer scope maybe of the past, well, five weeks. Not such a long scope, but of the many attacks that we've been seeing attributed to ISIS. Uh, Of course, I'm here with my friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis. Good morning, Tamara. Good morning. I'd like to tell you about my 10-point plan to fight ISIS. Do you have one? Sure. Doesn't everybody? Sure, I do. Yeah, yeah. The, the fir- first point of the plan is always, we need a strategy. We definitely need a strategy. The, the second point of the plan is never to articulate what that strategy is. It has to be a comprehensive strategy, and we have to work with our allies. Right, yes. comprehensively. R- comprehensively. With with our most comprehensive allies. With persistence. Yes. Pers- <laughs> I think we've just solved the problem. <laughs> I, you clearly have right ideas about what to do about this. It would be interesting to create, like, an ISIS strategy Mad Lib. no. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, you know. It would be too easy. <laughs> it's low-hanging fruit. <laughs> it is, for sure. Um, that, of course, is my friend Benjamin Wittes. Hello, Ben. Hey. Ben does not have a 10-point plan, but maybe like a 7-point. No. No. I point. have. No. I am planless, planless on the ISIS front. It's probably a smart idea. He has no bright ideas. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, let's see what we can, uh, what world's problems we can solve today. Uh, so, in wordplay today, uh, what do the ISIS attacks in Turkey, Egypt, Lebanon, and now France tell us about the group's evolution and whether it's changing strategy? The Paris attacks are also breathing new life into the crypto wars. And U.S. governors say they don't want Syrian refugees in their states. Well, not all U.S. governors, but... Many. By the way, Syrian refugees are all, like, refusing to accept Republican governors, too. Yeah, they don't need them. They don't need them. And they're they're various governorates. Who does need them? Well, not ISIS, that's for sure. Uh, Tomorrow, why don't you kick us off with your wordplay? Sure. Uh, Well, look, there's a lot that um, is already out there. Uh, Good analysis, bad analysis, and otherwise on the meaning of the Paris attacks. But I think one of the important questions that's being asked Uh, is whether these attacks, in combination, as you said, Shane, with um, other out-of-area, so to speak, attacks uh, attributed to ISIS in recent weeks, the bombing in Ankara of a peace rally, the bombings in southern Beirut, uh, double suicide bombing there, and the downing of the Russian airliner in the Sinai, whether this together represents a shift in strategy by ISIS. And so um, my colleague, Will McCants, who's... um, 
who's got a book out on ISIS and really has tried to get inside the theology and the ideology of this group, uh, was asked this question over the weekend by the Washington Post. And his take on it is, you know, number one, that we don't really know yet why they've done this. And we may not know for some time. Let's remember, we didn't know the full rationale for al-Qaeda's attacks on on New York and Washington until sometime after 9-11, some years after 9-11. But, um, but it definitely does seem like a shift in targeting. That's clear. Uh, and that ISIS has been focused for the last several years on a state-building project, however horrific and somewhat irrational, in Syria and Iraq. Um, so, you know, did they shift for ideological reasons? Did they shift because they feel like they've got their territorial foothold and now they can focus on deterring some of the Western governments that are trying to take that foothold away? Um, or did they shift their targeting precisely because they are under pressure in their territorial foothold in Syria and Iraq? They've lost about 25% of their territory this year. Uh, to offensives, you know, combined air ground operations by Kurdish forces, some Iraqi yeah. forces, and so on, along with uh, an air campaign by the U.S. and others. So, you know, is this a way of saying, oh, okay, you're coming to get us? Well, we can come to get you. Um, or does it represent something broader? Um, maybe the same sort of rationale that we saw al-Qaeda ideologically embrace the need to bring down the West or hit the West where it hurts. Uh, make the world safe for their bizarre uh, vision. And, you know, it's a tough question and an answer. Obviously, the answer to it is deeply important at the end of the day uh, in terms of how, uh, how we react to this. And you already hear this sort of, um, in the absence of any good evidence, but, uh, but a significant debate over whether uh, scaling up military operations um, by the U.S. and its allies in Syria and Iraq is just exactly what ISIS wants, to draw us deeper into the fight, or whether, uh, to the contrary, we need to hit them hard there so that they can't hit us here, so to speak. What do you guys think? I think one important question to, an to, to answer to get at this <clears throat> is how long have these attacks been planned? Right. I mean, if we kind of now I go back and I look at things like the shooting at the Jewish Museum in 2014, which was done by a guy who now has been tied to ISIS, you know, higher ups in Syria. Those kind of things look like sort of like one offs, maybe opportunistic. Who knows? But now these are much more highly coordinated coming in a succession. I guess my question is, have they been planned for a long time? Were they rapidly planned? And I think that's important because if this was something that had been in the planning stages for a long time, it, to me, speaks more to a next phase of the strategy. But if they were more recently planned, it speaks more to this, we need to do it because our ranks are being diminished and we need to sort of adapt to that, this sort of the loss of territory and you know, the fight that they're losing with the Kurds. Um, regardless, though, I mean, I think it, it, it's, it's... I agree with what you said, that, that it, it, ISIS for a long time was sort of in this box of we presume that they did not have out-of-area extraterritorial ambitions and that the enterprise was largely focused on the establishment of a state and the provision of services. I had thought for a long time that that was a smarter strategy for them than courting more military response from the West or the United States because, you know, if we put ground troops out in there, we'd wipe them out. Now, whether we could hold that territory for much long time is, is a bigger question, but we'd wipe them out. So it's not really in their interest necessarily to provoke that response. To provoke that response, exactly. Then again, I mean, look, 
the French and the Russians have been bombing the snot out of Raqqa for the past 48 hours. The, the Russians launched a 25 bomber uh, uh, sortie last night, which was like one of the biggest in modern history, begging the question, well, why weren't you hitting these things in Raqqa before? And it makes Because they were too busy hitting <coughs> Syrian... Non-ISIS rebel not, forces. Yeah, exactly. Could be. Well, but, or they're just moving dirt around have, in Raqqa. As, There's nothing there. As the New York Times' as Ann Barnard pointed out uh, this morning, you know, we also have France hitting a bunch of targets in Raqqa yesterday, targets apparently provided by the United States. Right. And so the question is, if the U.S. had this target list, why were we hitting them why before? Why were we hitting them before? And is, if it's because they weren't especially valuable targets, then what good does it do to hit them now? Well, right. What do we expect this but to But the achieve? other possibility is that they were uh, targets that we did not want to hit for civilian protection reasons. But the that, French are willing to do it, is well, that what the, you're saying? The, the, you know, they may be in a more aggressive posture after Paris than we were before Paris. And Okay, uh, so, so point of information, the U.S. providing such a target list is not in any way constrained by U.S. rules of engagement with respect to civilian harm? So, number one, I have no I have no idea what the civilian harm calculation in any of these strikes is, and I have no idea if that's the reason that we didn't hit them. We share intelligence on potential targets all the time with you know with allies, and they may make a, a different calculation uh, than we do about what's an appropriate target to hit. And the other thing is that the value of a target worth hitting today when you're really interested in sending a message to ISIL and to the world about ISIL may be different than it was last week when you would say, okay, what is, what is the realistic military advantage that we're going to get from destroying this empty building? And the French may have an, a different answer to that mm -hmm. question when they're trying to you know, show that they're serious about this than we would have last week. And so I think all of those questions are, you know, may play into it and, and be so legitimate. Th this gets to, I think, a really important question about ISIS that is different from the questions that the, that the U.S. and other powers have been facing in the fight against al-Qaeda over the last 15 years. You know, al-Qaeda had a base of operations in Afghanistan, but it wasn't about ruling Afghanistan. And so we had a certain premise, which is that you can't deter these guys. Um, you can only you know, make it hard for them. You can interrupt their operational capabilities. You can decapitate them. But they don't have a lot to lose. ISIS, because it had focused on building some kind of governing entity, seems to have something to lose. And that raises the question of whether bombing their supposed capital, more or less capital, um, has some deterrent value, like we will destroy your nascent state if you keep attacking us in the West. I don't know, frankly, whether that's a viable um, strategy or not, but it's, it, does, it does seem to be a hypothesis that's worth investigating in the ISIS case that I think we had a very different view of in the Al-Qaeda case. Well, so I, I, mean, I think this goes back to the question that you raised at the outset, which is, is this happening, this shift of strategy happening because they're under pressure and losing territory? Or is it happening because, you know, they're jihadists and jihadists do jihad against the West and, you know... And it was inevitable that they would move in this direction. Exactly. And I think, you know, your one's instinct 
about how to handle this situation is very different if it flows, if you think their change of tactic flows out of um, a kind of encroaching desperation because they're actually losing on the ground, or if you think it flows from their essential nature. Um, and you know, it may be that the right answer, if the former is correct, and that may be optimistic, to say, okay, we're going to have a dangerous period now between now and when the Islamic State really collapses. But the right answer is to understand Paris as an example of this of the policy sort of working and push ahead with it. I'm, per I'm persuaded that it's a change in strategy that is more of the like of this is what jihad is through and it was inevitable. But I wouldn't have been persuaded that until Paris. I mean, looking at the Metrojet crash, what was interesting to me is whether that was something that was ordered up by ISIS Central and they told the Sinai affiliate, go do this, or whether it was more in the vein of, like, the Garland shooting, frankly, where it's just affiliates and people who are inspired, and boy, were they ever inspired to do something spectacular. But the attacks in Paris, although we don't know for sure, seem to bear all the hallmarks of a sophisticated, coordinated, planned operation. Multiple teams, they were trained. Suicide vests, which are not easy to get. They're not easy to move from Syria to Paris either, I would suspect, so that makes me think maybe they were being made in Paris. Um, the people who they've identified are known ISIS figures who have connections to Baghdadi. It just looks like a much more organized, planned operation than these sort of spontaneous kind of go forth and do violence in the name of ISIS. And, and if it is that and it's coordinated, then, then it has to be part of the strategy, unless there is some shake up at the upper ranks and we don't know who is controlling calling in control and calling the shots and there's been some cleavage but there's no sign of that either i just i'm more in the camp now of like that this was deliberate this is the next phase and you know that i don't know if it's that we were underestimating them before and thinking that they only had sort of territorial ambitions uh or if this is new but it seems to me pretty clearly it's what it is now. I mean, we have underestimated them at every stage. Yes, that's true. There, there's also another dimension of this, which is, you know, to what extent might this shift in targeting and shift in approach represent the next phase of their competition with al-Qaeda for the leadership of the global jihad, right? Because this was al-Qaeda's um, space, so to speak, right. out of area They did attacks. these kinds of things. They did right. these kinds of things. And if ISIS can show that it can do the state building stuff on the ground and, you know, slaughter the Christians and the Yazidis in Iraq and do out of area attacks, then that makes them, you know, heavier operators in the global jihadi world. Not that, I mean, if you look at the competition in terms of who's been recruiting more, they've been winning that anyway. Yeah. Um, but maybe this is the next phase of but, that competition. It's not actually about how the U.S. responds. But there's another important danger in that, which is that, you know, Al-Qaeda is now under quite a bit of pressure to kind of get its mojo back. Right. And, and, oh, Lord. Um, Here we go. You, know, you always find the silver lining in every cloud, Ben. <laughs> this is great. Transnational jihadist competition. competition. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, you know, there, there is actually concern about that in... In among the people who have to prevent such things. Right. Indeed. One last quick question before we go on to the next wordplay, but how would this have been different if the attacks were in New York or Washington and not Paris? In other words, would we be sending, you know, combat troops to Syria? 
Would the U.S. Yeah. be? Well, I think it would be hard for the president to keep it at 50 special operators going in on the ground. I think there'd be a lot of pressure for him to do more. But whether that would mean a full-scale ground operation, that you know, the the public support and the even the support in Congress still just isn't there for that. I think it would have been it would have been more shocking only insofar as that people are not totally surprised this happened in France, where there's been a long history of these fomenting tensions. And it would raise all kinds of questions of how did they get, you know, seven people with explosives and guns into the country and et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, I'm with you. I'm not totally convinced that we'd have boots on the ground. But that slippery slip would get a lot It would get very there. greasy. Okay, Ben, your wordplay. Uh, the crypto wars were totally dead. Long live the crypto wars, right? Yeah, they were totally dead for, you know, a week and a half or something. <laughs> yeah. um, we so. love news cycles here at Rational Security. You know, I don't know whether this is going to revive them or not, but uh, the machinations over the 48 hours, 72 hours after the attacks are really interesting. So the first thing that happened was that people speculated, little less than responsibly, I think, that these people had been communicating by encrypted means and therefore it was Edward Snowden's fault. Uh, Glenn Greenwald responded to this in a blistering and very long uh, intercept post in which he, you know, kind of preemptively defended Snowden against any suggestion that, um, you know, the leaks may have had anything to do with this. Uh, and then um, in response to that, or following that, not in response to that, uh, news started trickling out that, in fact, the uh, investigators in Europe do think there was encryption uh, involved in the bad guy comms here. Um, and so the, uh, this led uh, John Brennan in a speech at CSIS the other day to, uh, you know, ruminate on the subject a little bit, saying that uh, he was... This uh, was official ruminating, though. Well, yeah, so he didn't confirm anything about the investigation. He was also prompted by a question. Yes, yeah. he was prompted by a question, but he didn't shy away from saying that people were, uh, you know, that the terrorists were using the stuff and that there was a going dark problem. And Mike Morell, speaking on Face the Nation, said very specifically that the first wave of this debate was conducted uh, in the shadow of Snowden, and the reference point was Snowden and privacy, and the second part of this debate was happening, uh, would happen with the, uh, in the shadow of and with the reference point being Paris. So in other words, just to make sure I understand you, even if there's no evidence that Snowden's revelations in particular led to um, intelligence problems in these attacks, there's still a broader issue that he thinks needs to be revived. Well, so, I, I mean, I don't think you'll ever get specific evidence that these particular terrorists used a particular encryption system because they were aware of something because Edward Snowden right. leaked X. I mean, I think that's just asking for too much connective, uh, causal connective tissue. But I do think what, what is reasonable to expect that we may find out is that they were using encrypted apps 
of precisely the type that Jim Comey has been warning publicly about for a year now, and of precisely the type that he has been ridiculed for uh, suggesting creates a going dark problem for the FBI. And I think that's, you know, if that turns out to be the case, it is likely to produce a very different discussion than we have had to date about how serious the going dark problem is. Okay, and the discussion, to be precise, we're looking at the U.S. government, and Brennan's now on the record, but we're looking at tech companies, and we're also looking at European governments, right? Well, so European governments are uh, in a similar place to where the United States government is on this, that is struggling with the question of whether to regulate, require some kind of extraordinary access for their law enforcement. In some, some countries like Britain are sort of ahead of us in this, and some are not. Um, yes, the tech companies and the kind of uh, crypto libertarian community more broadly are the principal antagonists to these ideas. And, you know, it's a very, very hard set of issues. And the administration came to, uh, over the summer, what it thought was a kind of end state position, which was they announced that they were not going to be seeking legislation at this time <laughs> and let it ride, not forswear it, but not uh, pursue it right now either. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see to what extent that survives the, the next several weeks of revelations and discussions. You know, oh, sorry. I, I think that Brennan also, he, he did, I, I listened to the remarks, I mean, Snowden was, the name was hanging in the air, but he also, I think, went a little, a little further than saying or implying, strongly implying, you know, Snowden revealed these things that, you know, we're doing, therefore it drove people into the arms of commercial encryption, which I think is a dubious assertion and for present purposes doesn't solve the problem anyway. But he also seemed to kind of, you know, lash out at the European Court of Justice opinion and at some of the actions that countries have taken in response to the Snowden leaks and maybe even to our own necessity now through executive command to extend privacy rights or respect to foreign persons. I mean, it's a little bit long, but I think he gets at this. But I must say that there uh, has been a significant increase in the operational security of a number of these operatives and the terrorist networks as they have gone to school on what it is that they need to do in order to keep their activities concealed from the authorities. And as I mentioned, there are a lot of technological capabilities that are available right now that make it exceptionally difficult, both technically as well as legally, for intelligence security services to have the insight they need to uncover it. And I do think this is a time for particularly Europe, as well as here in the United States, for us to take a look and see whether or not there have been some um, <clears throat> inadvertent or um, intentional gaps that have been created in the ability of intelligence and security services to protect the people that they are asked to serve. And in, in the past several years, because of a number of unauthorized disclosures and a lot of uh, hand-wringing over the government's role in the effort to try to uncover these terrorists, 
there have been some policy and legal and other actions that are taken that make our ability collectively, internationally, to find these terrorists much more challenging. And I do hope that this is going to be a wake-up call, particularly in areas of Europe where I think there has been a, um, <clears throat> a misrepresentation of what the intelligence and security services are doing um, by some quarters that are designed to undercut uh, those capabilities. And just for our purposes, he basically says, you know, at least my read on this is that he says that, you know, thanks to Snowden, he upset these relationships with our partners. He made it politically impossible for them to do the things that they need to do, that we need to do. Basically, goddamn you, Edward Snowden, you made everything more difficult for people like me to collect information. Mm -hmm. okay. and, you, and you drove a wedge between me right. and my European partner. Correct. Yeah, I mean, that's how I read this and, you know. But I think the Snowden role in it is actually a distraction from the real issue. I think it's a huge distraction. The, the real, you're never going to, uh, you know, resolve the question of Snowden hero or villain because of Paris. You know, people are going to make other judgments based on Snowden, about Snowden. The, re the real question here is, does this or does this not bolster the idea that there is a, a going dark problem with commercial widespread encryption that requires some degree of regulatory or other remedy? And that's, that's true whether you think Snowden's a hero or a villain. Right. Well, and look, I think that's, that's the policy question, clearly. But what we also have going on right in this moment is you have a really bad set of attacks and you have a hot potato game. And so the hot potato first gets tossed in a backward looking fashion. Well, it's Edward Snowden's fault, but that doesn't last very long. They need some forward looking you know, places to um, aim responsibility or put pressure for change. And you know, you might be right then that this generates um, more momentum within the administration to look for legislative solutions, and it may even open up possibilities in Congress. But given how stuck the political system is, I suspect that both Republicans and Democrats are going to be perfectly happy to just stay outside legislative proposals and put pressure publicly, rhetorically, on the tech companies to solve this problem for them without new law. And there's a question, too, I mean, what could you actually do? I mean, you know, Chris Segoyan pointed this out this morning, that four out of the five uh, major, uh, majorly ranked as secure uh, apps for secure chatting, which, by the way, ISIS is not using, apparently, at least one of them, um, uh, uh, are open source. So how would you shut these down? What would you do? Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it seems to me that there's going to be a lot of fulminating and a lot of angst about this, and I'm not really sure whether you can technologically solve that problem. They'll just move to a different app. I mean, it, it's, and it's, now you too have found the silver lining in our dark cloud, Shane. Exactly. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome, America. Okay, I'm going to go to my wordplay. Uh, how many governors now hate Syrian refugees? 31? Too many. 32. They've seen the enemy. And it's the Syrian and it's refugees. The victims of ISIS. Yes. Good Lord. Uh, so, yeah, so more than two dozen uh, governors yesterday, uh, or in the past, I guess, couple days, have said that they do not want Syrian refugees coming to their states. Um, it is a largely symbolic kind of gesture because governors do not actually have the authority to seal off borders in the United States. Although one of them, I hey, believe it was Bobby Jindal, said that he was going to send state troops out to round up any Syrians recently settled yeah, in his state. Great. 
Um, anyway, this does get, I think, at a, you know, obviously there we have pretty strong feelings about the morality of this and the, the human dignity issues that are involved. Uh, and it is a bit of, um, in my opinion, a bit of um, attacking the victim here. And um, uh, rank political opportunism and Rank political here. opportunism, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I guess it does, like, so what's the serious policy challenge involved here, right? And it is that if we're going to be letting serious refu Syrian refugees in, the administration is going to screen them. It is going to put them to a higher degree of scrutiny than whatever is being applied normally to people who come into this country, including asylum seekers. Um, I guess one question I have is, is that, is that is that good enough? I mean, I personally think that if you put them to extra, extra scrutiny, make sure that there aren't any ISIS people trying to slip in in the ranks, that seems like a prudent thing to do. Um, can you make a foolproof system? No, and that is the price for living in an open society and one that values creating a place where people can flee war and you know travesty and make a better life for themselves and their families uh, you know is it i'm not even sure how high the risk really is in this situation well, but I, I yeah, can give you some data on this so unlike political asylum where we have let in people who turn out to be really scary bad guys most famously Omar Abdul Rahman, the, 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 the blind sheikh, there is essentially no history of the U.S. refugee program producing uh, serious security problems right. in the United States. Um, the United States is by far, by several country miles, the world's leader in long-term refugee resettlement. Um, We've taken in, you know, half a million refugees in the last few years alone. Um, we don't do it the way European countries do it, which is, you know, people flee over land into the country and we sort of shelter them because, you know, you can't really flee over land to the United States. So Except we from Latin America, right, and a lot do. They don't come as refugees, um, by and large. They come as illegal migrants. Um, but the, you know, what we do is we have a long-term, we have a long relationship with UNHCR in which they nominate people uh, and groups of people. We screen them, and then we, in an orderly way, you know, after that screening, pick them up and fly them here. And there is simply no history of serious security problems right. arising from that system. Uh, it has been, it, its big problems are that it takes a long time. Um, it's, the screening is actually rigorous and uh, I'm, you know, but this is, you know, the premise here, which is that we're going to be letting in, uh, you know, a lot of ISIS people, I, I think simply has no support in the history of the U.S. refugee program. Well, and moreover, I mean, if you think about it from ISIS's perspective, um, and even if you look at what we know so far about these parents' attacks, the majority of the attackers, if not all, we still don't know, um, had European passports. And we have visa waiver programs. I mean, a Belgian could get, you know, get on a plane and fly to New York and walk into the country, you know, to visit the Empire State Building um, with so, so, so much less screening than we're giving these refugees. It's sort of astonishing. It, it's, it's fundamentally illogical for uh, political leaders in this country to fixate on the refugee resettlement program. Um, and it, it strikes me that there is only, 
one reason why this resonates politically and therefore why governors and some Republican legislators uh, think that there's something in it for them to even say this, um, which is that, you know, among some portions of the American uh, electorate, Syrians equate to terrorists. And I find that so depressing. Mm-hmm. This is this is a country, you know, of 20 million people before the war, half of whom have been displaced, a quarter of a million of whom have been slaughtered. Um, and, 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 by the way, you know, a lot of the most ancient Christian communities in the world displaced and slaughtered in the course of this conflict. And the idea that there are people in the American public for whom Syrian equals Muslim jihadi terrorist such that governors think they have some political percentage in making this argument, that really depresses me. That's just a fact-free zone. Although Jeb Bush did say that he's not in favor of banning the refugees from coming here. You know, I saw that this morning, and I I thought it was um, really something to see one and only one Republican primary presidential candidate stand up in the face of this nativist assault. How are we to understand that? I think it tells you that Jeb Bush has concluded he's not going to be the Republican nominee. Oh. Well, I would also point out, before we before we give Jeb Bush too much of an honorably accepted... Thank uh, you for your service. That, that, that he was the first, uh, I believe, the first of the Republican candidates to suggest that we should uh, take in only the Christian... Yes, uh, oh, that's Syrian true. refugees. Ooh. Ooh. And... Um, or give priority to them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because Christians have never done anything bad. I I think we'll give you a C minus for that one, Jeff. Jeff He's evolving on his position. Well, at least he's evolving in a a positive direction. This is true. This is true. Okay. Low bar. Shall we move on to object lessons? This week has been an object lesson. I have a great object lesson. Okay. Go for it. My object lesson is anonymous's awesome video oh, in French yes. declaring war on ISIS. Now, Anonymous... Do Anonymous? Uh, uh, I, I just want to point out <laughs> that, anonymous. that Anonymous, you know, which, of course, opposes all sorts of surveillance uh, stuff, is now, um, you know, seizing control of ISIS Twitter accounts um, and behaving... Um, you know, I little, God bless them, they couldn't be doing it to a nicer bunch of guys, Um, but we now have the anarchists taking on, it's almost like, you know, 1930 or 1911, right, the the anarchists taking on the, you know, the religious fundamentalists and... um, uh, Anarchists, free riders on liberalism. Right. Just can't admit it. And they believe that the only people who should be able to do surveillance against ISIS is anonymous, right. um, extra legal, uh, but there it is. But trust them. They they claim they to, have the right heart. Right. They yeah. claim to Please. have taken fi- over five thousand ISIS Twitter accounts, and ISIS has responded by uh, calling them quote idiots unquote and issuing guidance to its people about how to engage in better cybersecurity. <laughs> Clearly paying attention. One of the, uh, by the way, one of their pieces of guidance is don't click on any links in Twitter direct messages. So I'm going to pass that on to, you know, to uh, rational security listeners. ISIS says 
don't click on the direct message uh, links. Wow. If one of your ISIS friends contacts you and tells you that they lost their passport in a taxi in London and they just need you to wire them $5,000. Right. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> do that. Do that. ISIS is practicing good cyber hygiene. Okay, I'm, I'm, my next, I'm going to do my object now. It's, um, it's this spiffy little coffee mug right here. With a logo. Arip. Arip. With a logo you probably have not seen. A-I-R-I-P. It sounds like A-A-R-P, but it's not. Association of International Risk Intelligence Professionals. Um, they wow. are brand new. They have a trade association They now. have a trade association now. And I actually moderated a panel for these folks here today at their inaugural conference. Um, these are basically, I think it's interesting. Do they want to sponsor rational security? Uh, you know. <laughs> funny that you asked that question, Ben. Now that I'm mentioning them here on the air, uh, what I thought was interesting about this group is that it's it's an offshoot of the kind of classic physical corporate executive security types, like you know you're kind of ex-military and ex-intelligence who do the kind of bodyguarding. You know, if you're watching the current season of Homeland, like Carrie Mathis and what she does after she leaves the CIA. But what what struck me was that how many people who attended this conference actually did not have government backgrounds. I, maybe even the majority of the people had either come out of college studying intelligence and security or just entered into the field of intelligence risk assessment and very much like intelligence-based, so using mm-hmm. data, using open source. And it was just a very interesting sort of moment in the, what I see is this, like, I don't like the term privatization and for it you know, connotes things like Halliburton and you know, Blackwater, but the extent to which intelligence analysis and security has be, is becoming very much a private sector business that is not necessarily just a plain outgrowth of government or where government people go after they've retired, but is sort of generating people in its own ranks kind of uh, out of its own courses of study at universities or just recruiting people who might be really good at doing the same kinds of things that you do in the CIA generally, but for, uh, for businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just really interesting. It was sort of a, you know, the fact that they are now on the scene, I think, says something about where the trends are going. So, interesting. And hey, if you're maybe our members will be interested, you know, there there's a trade association out there for you. And there's might a sponsorship be a sponsorship opportunity, opportunity out there for, for you. you. Tomorrow. I'm object. objectless today. You're objectless? I am. Really? I'm ethereal. I'm in the cloud. That's okay. We all kind of feel that way right now. <laughs> yeah. I think that's fine. Yeah. All right. Who's our non-sponsor today? Um, our non-sponsor today is Mucinex. No, that's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I can tell that you've been making your own personal investment in yes, Mucinex. Yes, yes, I have. I, I really, I don't, I don't normally sound like Kathleen Turner uh, all the time, but yeah, this week I do. But uh, yes, don't go by that disgusting name. A terrible name for a drug, by the way. <laughs> it is. It's descriptive, it but really not very no. appealing. Memo to Mucinex's marketing department. The more your product name sounds like mucus, <laughs> the less appealing it is going to be to the general public. Oh, not saying I haven't been taking it, but anyway. But that thankfully brings us to the end of the podcast this week. <laughs> uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. Of course, you can find links to our shows and past episodes at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Uh, when you download the podcast, please remember to leave a five, leave a six-star rating if you can. Leave a five-star rating and draw more stars 
in the comment box. Right, because our amp goes up to 11. Totally, yeah, yeah. Just lock it in and rip the knob off, people. Uh, the podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Bobby Jindal and the Rock and Refugees. <laughs> oh. Hey, he needs a job. He does. And he's been on the road. He should just keep going. You know, maybe UNHRC should make him, uh, UNHCR oh. should make him ambassador, a large ambassador. for refugees. How about, how about ISIS and the Anonymous Idiots? Ooh, that's mm. good. That's a very good name for his band. I like it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, of course, no. Our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. Live to you from Hong Kong. Do they have anonymous in Hong Kong? I don't know. I think they must. They probably do. They're everywhere. Yeah. Expect them. Yeah, expect them. Yeah, exactly. And expect us next week. Thanks for listening. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. 